we find ourselves in the first narrative of Luke chapter 1. Turn there with me as I already read, but that's the scripture lesson in chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. So turn there, if you would, with me. Um, We are reading about the announcement of John the Baptist, not to be confused, which can be at times with John the Apostle. John the Apostle who wrote the gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the epistles, um, is a different John. Uh, this is John the Baptist. And just a quick review, remember Luke, as we open this book, he's the human author, he's a doctor, he's a companion, a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul, he's a Gentile, non-Jew, who wrote one book with two volumes, the gospel according to Luke, and the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Acts as well. And we know now, putting those books together, that Luke wrote more in quantity than any other New Testament writer. I think it's somewhere around a third of the New Testament was written by this man Luke, this Dr. Luke. He's writing to a man named Theophilus, Greek meaning lover of God, loved by God. Maybe a new convert, we're not really sure, but if you look at verse 3, he is uh, most excellent, so probably some sort of a Roman nobleman. Uh, we're, we're calling this series, as you know, um, the uh, mission to the world. Uh, really, because Luke, under the inspiration, although human author, he's been inspired by the Holy Spirit, shows us God's love, God's compassions, God's grace, God's mercy extended to extends to all people, all nations, tongues, and tribes. Just like what we learned in Isaiah, as we were reading, studying Isaiah together, in the midst of this conflict going on within the Jewish people, there will be a remnant of them as well, but God's word and God's Messiah uh, light to all the nations, Isaiah tells, will come to all people. Um, We know that Luke is a highly educated man who put on a hat of an investigator. He's interviewing, and he's, he's interviewing eyewitnesses to give us this account, this truthful account about the life of Jesus. He writes that in chapter one. It's an orderly account. He said, what has been accomplished among you, verse one, beginning were eyewitnesses, verse two. All right, an orderly account, verse 3. And he wants to share what he knows the truth to be about the, about the birth, the life, the ministry, and the work of Jesus while he was ministering on earth. Acts picks up and what God continues to do, what Jesus continues to do after his resurrection and ascension through the Holy Spirit in the church. So one is what Jesus is doing. Acts is what Jesus continues to do. Luke emphasizes the, the, the being the perfect man. Very important, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy way back to Adam, the first man, showing that he is fully human, and also that he came to rescue all of humanity. All of mankind can be redeemed. Remember, Matthew traced it back from, to Abraham and to King David, showing the Jewish people that he is the covenant promise made to both Abraham and to David, King David. Luke has a deep interest of people. We'll see that even here in our text this morning. He'll show how much God loves the, the, the despised, the downtrodden, the hated race of Samaritans. Uh, he'll elevate the importance of women and children and, and, and the despised people of that day like the tax collectors. He has a u- unique insight into the Holy Spirit. We said that last week too. We'll see that again today. And we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 last week. We said simply that Luke is writing a biblical account. He's not only talking about the life and ministry of Jesus, but what Luke is going to do for us, and then he's going to do it today, is connect the Old Testament promises to the New Testament fulfillment. It's biblical. God has been saying all along, and really, we, many people should be not surprised 
Jesus is expected to come. Someone was coming, Jesus, excuse me, God had promised in his word. It's biblical. It's historical. He did a careful investigation. I mentioned last week, Luke opens up the first few verses very particular in a very unique Greek language because he wants to hold up to the standards of the historical investigations of his day. Nobody reading the gospel according to Luke would open up the first few verses and think it was some sort of folklore or legend that we hear today in our universities. No one would have done that in that day. He says he, 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 he talked to eyewitnesses, if you notice that, in verse 2. Think about, with this, think about this for a minute. I didn't mention this last week, but let me mention it now. If I am investigating something and I tell you there are eyewitnesses, what I'm telling you is I'm putting myself and the material I'm writing into, into, into your hands to be, be scrutinized, really, by the public eye. In other words, I'm saying, this person told me, here's the phone number, go ask them yourself. That's what Luke is doing. I've, I've, I've talked to eyewitnesses, go ask them yourself. It's biblical, it's historical, and finally, verse 4, it is, we said last week, purposeful, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. We need to know the salvation true in Christ. We need to be sure of the virgin birth. Jesus' obedience and sinless life. What Jesus did to save us from the wrath of God, how he suffered in our place and he died for our sins, there needs to be certainty. He raised from the dead, calling all people to come to him in repentance and faith. And he will raise them up on the last day. And all those who repent can, 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 can be embraced by the grace and mercy and love of God. We need to be sure. That's what he says in verse 4. As we get into this next text, 5 through 20, we're going to see four things. As we jump into this very first narrative of the birth of John, we're going to see a childless priest, verses 5 through 10. We'll see a child promised, a father's doubt, and a mother's praise. Childless priest, a child promised, and a, mother's, a father's doubt, and a mother's praise. So let's look at that together, verses 5 through 10. As, as you look at these verses, you'll notice that, uh, and as Luke's going to do this often, he's going to put the narrative in historical context. He talks about the, that this is going on during the end of the reign of Herod the king, king of Judea, which started around 37 B.C., and we know this historically, and ended around 4 to 3 B.C. Luke tells us that Zechariah was a priest from the line of Abijah. Verse 39, if you look down, you'll see that he is a country folk. He's a country priest. He lives in the hill country of Judea. Zechariah was married. Had a woman, wife, his name, her name was Elizabeth. She was from the line of Aaron, another priestly line. The name Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. <laughs> and we will see that exactly what God's going to remind him of, his own name. It says, interesting enough, Luke says, they were righteous before God walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the law. That does not mean, family, that they were sinless, for there is no one righteous, no, not one, Paul tells us. What it means is that they lived generally conformed to the laws of God, the statutes of God, the commandments of God. They were people who loved God and obeyed God, who understood what it means to walk intimately with God, serving Him faithfully. There's a difference between a righteousness that's needed to stand before a holy God and a righteousness that is something that we do when we just live by the right way according to God's law. They lived according to God's law. 
They were upright in their religious beliefs. They, they followed the commands of God. That's why it says that they had many, many children, multitude of grandchildren, and riches beyond measure. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that, does it? <clears throat> in many cultures, they, obviously they had no children. They were unable to have children. In many cultures, infertility is a, is a, a painful situation. Some cultures, an unbearable weight. In fact, the Hebrew culture, ancient Hebrew culture, was more, even more pro- problematic. There are many that saw barrenness with women a, a disgrace, even, even a punishment of God. Hagar, in chapter 16, when she conceived, she looked with contempt upon Sarah, who remained barren, uh, barren without child. Leah, in chapter 29 of Genesis, said her former barrenness was misery. Hannah, in chapter 1 of, uh, in, in 1 Samuel, she wept bitterly because of her barrenness. So Elizabeth, without question, suffering from the looks, the smug attitudes, the posture of others, even in verse 25, she calls her own barrenness a disgrace. We can imagine the lifelong, lifetime of heartache behind those words that she speaks. This was the great disappointment of Elizabeth's life. And now, the text tells us it's too late. She's too old. She is advanced in years, verse 7. You might think of them as an old country pastor and his wife, right? Nearing the age of their retirement. You know, sometimes our difficult and our hard circumstances we find ourselves are caused by our own doing. By our own hard-headedness. Well, I can say by my own hard-headedness. My own doing, my own sin. But here we see that both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were known by their godliness. They had a right relationship with God. Luke is making it clear that this family's heartaches, difficulties, and trials did not come by some sort of sin or some punishment of sin. Our sins are not always the cause of our suffering. Sometimes they are, but not always. Sometimes suffering comes because we are following the commands of God. We are walking and obeying the Lord. Sometimes God allows us to suffer because he wants to be glorified through that suffering, through that hardship. We should be very, very careful, family, very careful not to reach the wrong conclusion about why something arduous, something difficult, some trial we're going through is happening to us or to someone else. Don't be quick to judge. In this case, Elizabeth was barren for the glory of God. God was not punishing her, but planning a miracle that would bring Elizabeth great joy and prepare his people for the coming salvation. The scene, as Luke tells us, continues with another historical indicator. First we learn about Herod, now we see there's a specific day. He kind of zeroes it in. The offering of incense in the temple. In those days, I read this week, there was something like 18,000 priests. 18,000. But only one temple, right? So lots of duties, but a lot more people than, than we have duties. The priests were divided into 24 divisions, of which uh, that of Abijah was the eighth. Each division of priests were on duty twice a year, it says, for a week on each occasion. Only 14 priests of 18,000 were given the privilege of offering the incense during a single year. Really minimal. There's no like, you know, let's, let's arm wrestle. 
Let's see who's smarter. Let's do a Bible sword drill. Like, there was no way to, to deter, to, to figure that out. So they trusted the Lord, and they cast lots to see who would burn that incense. Incense, burning incense, was a, was a huge privilege. It was a symbol of intercessory before God, praying before the Lord. Sweet aroma as the incense was burned and, and it raised up to God. And a priest would burn incense once in his lifetime, and many, many priests never had the opportunity to ever burn incense in the holy place, ever. This is a really, really important day for Zechariah. Probably the most important time and day in his entire life. I'm sure he remembers the day that he put on his priestly robes that morning, sign of purity, walked through the outer temple into the inner temple where the, where the, where the, uh, the men of God, uh, of Israel were, and there was multiple people there, it says, praying and worshiping as he walked past them, all eyes upon him as he's heading into the, toward the, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Uh, and, and as he got up and he went into the holy place, right before the holy of holies, he would see the sacred furniture that was in the, in the, in the temple, Golden lampstand flickering in the darkness. On the right side, the showbread in front of him. The golden altar of incense up against the curtain that separated from the holy place to the most holy place. Six, eight-inch thick curtain dazzling with cherubim woven in scarlet, blue, purple, and gold. Zechariah was standing in the presence of Almighty God. And you could feel the tension as he purifies the altar, waiting joyfully for the signal to, to light the incense, the sweet incense, and, and prayers offered up to God in the presence of God as, 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 as the incense and his prayers just lifted up in the sky. Heart pounding. His heart filled with joy and reverence. Gravity and gratitude. What a scene. Could it go any better? An angel shows up. And they appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah went home and changed his undergarments. No, that's not what it says, but he was scared to death. Right? It's what usually happens when this supernatural creature stands before you. This, this creature that God created as a, as a worshiper and, and as a, 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 someone who does his bidding. Sometimes we don't understand that. We say, well, what, what are you so afraid about? We got these, I don't know about you, growing up in a, in, in a Catholic background with big Catholic Bibles. I mentioned this before. Like angels were like fat, bloated babies with playing, you know, harps on clouds. Like, I'm not going to be afraid of that. No, that's not what the Bible declares. They live in the presence of God. They reflect his glory. Sinners are trembling before some of these mighty angels. When they stand before an angel, you'll see, we'll see in the next few weeks as well. They're afraid. This particular angel, as you read the text, is Gabriel, the messenger of salvation. Gabriel goes to see Mary after this, and before he went to see Elizabeth and Mary, if you go back in the Old Testament, he visited Daniel, chapter 8 through chapter 10. I mean, it would, Zechariah, when he found out it was Gabriel, he knew it was Gabriel, Gabriel spoke his name, he should have known right away the significant moment that this is before him. He's, he's been reading Daniel all his life. And Daniel speaks of the hope of the, of the coming Messiah. And here he is, uh, uh, 
the same angel had visited Daniel standing before him. And the first thing Gabriel says is, do not be afraid. Music to his ears, I'm sure. Music to his ears. But the petrified priest standing there, listening, Gabriel says to him, listen, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And guess what? You're calling John. They were praying people. John and Elizabeth were praying that someday they would have a son. You know, they were praying for a very long time. And some of you here have been praying for a very long time. And I have. Family, children, grandchildren, neighbors, co-workers. Praying, praying, praying. And sometimes it can get discouraging, I know. But we're called to keep praying. Just keep praying. The angel says, you know what? I, I heard your prayers. We have heard your, your prayers have been heard. She'll have a son. You know, Daniel, if you look at Daniel, Gabriel, Gabriel came to Daniel while he was offering sacrifices. He was f- afraid and prostrate. And Daniel's encounter with, with Gabriel spoke of the messianic times. And here we speak, he speaks of the messianic times. He's speaking to Zechariah, first Daniel, now Zechariah. And what that tells us is that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Many commentators will point out that the angel, when he speaks and says, your prayers have been heard, could, in the verb tense, it could indicate that that John was actually praying at the time for a child. I don't think so. I think he was well beyond that. Unless his wife was putting his clothes on, he's like, listen, I know we're 80, but... When you get before the presence of the Holy God in the holy place, don't forget to pray. You know, I mean, it could have been happened. It could have happened. But I think, I, I think Zechariah was entering into the temple and then entered into the holy place, and he was praying what many priests in those days prayed for, and that is the redemption of Israel. The redemption of Israel. Just, Lord, we need a redeemer. At that moment, little did he know that his son was the means by which God would prepare the world for the coming Messiah. You see, barrenness is not simply Elizabeth and Zechariah's problem. It's a problem of the nation of Israel. They needed deliverance. They needed rescue. Elizabeth's disgrace is symptomatic of Israel's disgrace, of barrenness, of spiritual barrenness. It was 400 years when the Old Testament closed and the New Testament opened up. And though the prayer that they offered uh, focused on a child, or excuse me, a hope of the nation, God takes this opportunity to fulfill his personal desires of Zechariah and Elizabeth, causing great joy for them, hope for them, and for the nations. Family, I'll hear, I'm here to tell you this morning that prayers are not necessarily rejected because God's answers are delayed. Okay, prayers are not necessarily rejected just because God's answers, answer to your prayer has been delayed. God is here answering the longing of two godly parents, nation's hope, national hope, personal hope of two parents. And the angel says, you know what, you will call his name John. John, which means God has been gracious. Why? John will come by the grace of God. 
This barren woman, this new life will come to her by the grace of God. And in biblical times, if you notice in scripture, in biblical times, and sometimes even today, I mean, there's a naming of our children, there's a sense of authority over them, but especially in biblical times, parents, especially fathers, were given the rights to name their children. I mean, all the way back in creation, you read in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam uh, was given the authority to have dominion over the earth, and God says to Adam, name the animals, whatever you name the animals, that will be their name. Giraffe, donkey, you know. And here, God steps in and says, you're not going to name this son. I'm going to. His name is going to be John. I'm taking that authority from you, and he will be what I called him to be, and I will have that authority over him. I will name him John. And at times of Scripture, we see Abram to Abraham, Sarai to, uh, uh, Sarai to Sarah. You shall call him John. You'll see he'll say, you shall call him Jesus. He tells Mary she don't have an option. And when God says that, God is saying, I have a special task. I have a, a special place. I'm setting him apart. I'm sanctifying him. I'm, cast, uh, I'm, I'm consecrating him for a special task. He'll bring joy and he'll bring gladness. Verse 15, he will be what? Great before the Lord. Jesus will go on to say these words. I tell you the truth, he said. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said. Next to Christ, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son would be second to none. Abraham, Joseph, think of all the people of Scripture. His greatness, his greatness emerges from his prophetic role and from his, his function as a forerunner to Jesus, as the text makes it clear. He'll pave the way for Christ, and it will only happen if he is set apart for the task. Verse 15, he must not drink wine or strong drink and be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John, you're going to live a disciplined life, an ascetic disciplined life. The child from conception will be controlled by the Spirit of God. No alcohol, nothing will control him but the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's John's task. And that task, that, that, that discipline sets him apart. Reminds us of Samuel, the first uh, prophet of, of God. And importantly, it says that he will be empowered by the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Well, God is making clear that his, this announcement about John being filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb is, is that he will be enabled by God. Work will not get done unless God intervenes and fills him with the Spirit. John is the only one, I believe, in Scripture that says he was filled from, with the Spirit from his mother's womb. God will equip him. Now, listen, I, I, that, that kind of a side note, okay, but might as well. Only human beings are filled with the Spirit in the womb. John, the human baby, will be filled with the Spirit. There's no question there. That's his name. That's his character. Next is mission, verse 16 and 17. Make his assignment clear. He'll pave the way for repentance. And preparation of the coming of Christ. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, which may suggest the fathers are the ones, maybe, a lot of commentators are all over the place, but I, I think the fathers are the ones who have disrupted his relationship to God. It's the leadership in the home. And this prediction is not just to, that the family is going to be uh, back in harmony, 
but it's an image of repentance and conversion. John is going to the work of an evangelist. God's going to take John and use him as an instrument in his hands to confront the people of Israel who were heirs of the covenant of the promise, who have rejected and despised it and have hardened their hearts. Just like many today, people have hardened their hearts. And God is going to take John, he's going to use him to turn people around. He will go before the Lord, he says, in the power of Elijah. Right? He's not going to be Elijah. That's going to come up later. He's not, Elijah's not coming down from heaven. right? He's going to anoint John with the power and the spirit that was on the prophet Elijah, who was a great mighty powerhouse for God. Well, why? Why would God do that? Why would God announce that in Luke chapter 1? I'll tell you why. At the end of the Old Testament, as the Old Testament closes in Malachi chapter 4, the end of the prophetic ministry, the end of the word of God, the Old Testament is closed, and these are the words. I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with the curse. The prophet Elijah was a man who denounced the apostasy of his own people. He withstood the pagan prophets of Baal. And God is saying that I am going to send John who's going to come in the power of Elijah and speak Words of judgment and repentance. These are ancient promises. Zechariah knew that he's a priest. Gabriel's prophecy is indicating clearly to Zechariah that his son would be the, uh, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fulfillment is on its way, Zechariah. God made a promise. God's keeping this promise by sending John. In the power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. A message of judgment, a message of repentance. That's why the gospel according to Luke starts with John the Baptist. He's calling people to be ready, to be prepared, to repent and turn to God, to get ready to turn and be prepared for Jesus. A change of heart, a change of direction, that's called repentance. It's not simply to make us ready, it's to prepare us. So we're going to look at repentance in the next few weeks. But let me just say, repentance, metanoia, is, literally means a change of direction. A change of mind, excuse me, a change of mind. And it's a decisive act that not only changes the mind, but it does change the direction of one's life. Like a soldier marching in line does an about face and marches in a different direction. The idea that Repentance could result in anything but a changed life is, is foreign to Scripture. Repentance is essential for salvation. One cannot truly believe unless he repents, and one cannot truly repent unless he believes. They're not synonymous, but they are one coin, two sides. Repent and believe. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. He's talking to the Thessalonica church. How you, church of Thessalonica, turned to God, turned from idols to serve the living and true God. There's turning from God and there's trusting in Christ. Jesus comes on a scene, Mark chapter 1, and says what? Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is a turning from sin. And it always results in a changed behavior. John will say in chapter 3, bring forth the fruit of repentance. Repentance doesn't save you, but there's fruit of a changed life. 
what we see here in this text is that repentance is an indication that the work of God, Spirit, is working in you. That God's work is working in you by His Spirit when we really see our sin, when we really see our need for grace. When we see our sin for what it really is and we are ready to see the marvelous, gracious, kindness, mercy of God. Okay? It doesn't save as I said. But one cannot exercise saving faith. One cannot appropriate Christ. One cannot experience the gift of salvation apart from biblical repentance. It's belief, excuse me, it's repentance and it's belief in Christ. You'll know that God's doing a work in your life if you're here this morning. When you are starting to see him for who he is and starting to see you for who you are. When you start to see, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I have sinned. Yes, I have rebelled. Yes, I've tried to live my own life. And yet I see the mercy, the grace, the love, the righteousness, the holiness of God that God is calling me to turn from my sin and trust in him. When you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Repentance does not mean you got to clean yourself up completely to come to him. Repentance, repentance means I've seen my sin, I'm turning to God for forgiveness. To trust in him, to turn from sin, self and the world, to trust Christ. That's what, that's what the uh, mission of John is. But look what happens in, in the father's doubt. The angel's words are like way too much for this priest to handle. He hears the words from Gabriel and he says, How shall I know this? I'm old. My wife has advanced his years as well. In other words, Gabriel, I think you work for the postal system. You got the wrong address. Sorry if you work for the postal system. You got the wrong address. I'm old. I'm Look at my gray hair. My wife, look at her. That ship sailed. She's not having any kids. Are you playing with us? And when he says that, that, that it can't happen, what he means is God can't do it. That's the issue. He's doubting the omnipotent power of a sovereign God. Like Abraham, he's looking at things from a merely human point of view. You know, biologically, he was correct. Theologically, he was wrong. Then Gabriel declares, I, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to you and to bring you this good news. Are you going to question what God's going to do? The, the good news, the evangelism, the, the proclamation of the gospel, that's where the good news means in the Greek, evangelism, good news, the, 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 the great news of God. He said, God sent me to declare the good news to you, Zechariah, and yet you're a priest, and you say you're too old? A little irony going on, isn't that right? Angel Gabriel, standing before the presence of God, gets his instructions. <laughs> Zechariah is standing before the God in the, in the temple, in the holy place, and tells him, look, you've been praying for this for a long time. Your prayers are answered. You're going to get what you prayed for. It's the fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy. It's fulfillment of Malachi, preparing the way of the Lord. And all you're worried about is how old you are, how old your wife is. It's better for him to say, man, what took you so long? I'm 80. That would have been better. Really, I've been praying for 80 years, about time. At least he would have believed them. Right? Zechariah was first scared to death, and now he's like rebuking Gabriel, like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, okay. There's a little irony going on there. And the consequence for his unbelief was fitted for the offense. Think about it. Zechariah's tongue, which uttered unbelief, now 
He's speechless. He had nine months to think about that decision he made. Speechless. Lots of time to reflect. I think the lesson we can learn is that when we pray for something specifically, don't doubt God's sovereignty and power to fulfill that prayer. Could it be that, as I thought about this week, could it be that when we pray for things that we secretly doubt whether or not God is able to do it? Doesn't this doubting of Zechariah take us back to verses 1 through 4? The purpose of Luke writing the gospel was because of doubts and certainties or uncertainties? Zechariah is questioning and doubting the validity of God's word that came to him via Gabriel despite the fact that Gabriel stands in the presence of God and speaks for him. In other words, he's saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who my boss is, Gabriel's saying? Like, do you realize what I just said and who said it? All right, you want to question God's word? I'll close your mouth (laughs) until the whole promise is fulfilled. Again, Zechariah means God has remembered. But Zechariah does not remember what God has done in the past with Abraham and does not trust the word of the Lord. R.C. Sproul writes this. Zechariah's streak of blamelessness comes to an abrupt halt in the holy place when he was visited by the angel. So Gabriel administers the judgment of God upon this supposedly righteous man for his unbelief, end quote. Luke purposely tells us this story not only because it's true, but because he wants to speak to you this morning, speak to me this morning about our doubts and our uncertainties, our trusting, our resting in the promises of God, right? He's speaking directly to the doubts, to the certainties. He's writing this gospel of certainty. He wants this story to propel our faith. He wants the story to strengthen our faith. He tells us how Zechariah responded to the gospel so that unlike him, unlike him, we respond in faith. Eventually, God will, we'll see in two weeks, make a believer out of Zechariah, but right now he's being disciplined for his unbelief. Sometimes when we're in trial, sometimes we're in difficulties and hardships, God takes us through those places so that we can learn to trust God more. It's unfortunate, I guess that's the right word to use, but we just don't do that on our own. We don't just wake up one morning and go, you know, I think I'm going to trust God more. No, he brings us through the fire, doesn't he? And that's when we get to see him and hold on to him and trust him more. We're being tested, we're being challenged, we're being examined by God to help us grow in our faith, trust him in his word. The Bible tells us that we are both tested and tempted. But the motive is what's different. You see, that's what the, temptations come, testing comes, either they're deliberately sent or they're allowed by God to reveal the truth of our character and genuineness of our faith. And ultimately, it is God's motive to transform us into the image of his son. It's never God's motive to lead us into sin. He doesn't tempt us into sin. It's for our edification. It's for our encouragement, not for our destruction. When Satan comes and he tempts us and tries us, it's for the purpose of luring us to sin. His motives are to bring the worst in us. It's always destruction. God tests us to increase our faith. Temptation comes, entices us within, to seeks to destroy us. It's a motive. The problems that we face sometimes, family, 
If we think our trials, if we think our struggles, our difficulties and, and hardships that we have in our life are this really, really big, giant problem, it can easily diminish God's great, giant, mighty power. We cannot believe our problems are great and God's power is great simultaneously. We, we, will, we, will, we will elevate one over the other. We get so absorbed, and my, I'm speaking to myself too, I get so absorbed with my problem that we can't hear God's word and we fail to believe God's power. Think of it this way, if you had a flashlight shining in your face, a big bright light, it only takes a small coin brought up to your eye to block that light out. Sometimes our problems are that big, or we see them that big. The failure to trust God. I think at times we don't take unbelief seriously enough. I don't take unbelief seriously enough. It carries consequences. If you're here and you're not trusting Christ and you're in unbelief, it's a sin. It's not only a sin, it's severe sin. It's, it's eternal consequences. Zechariah's problem wasn't simply an intellectual problem. It was a moral one. He would not trust in the word of the living God. And some people don't trust in God's word, not because it's, the word is unbelievable or implausible. It's because many times we project our inconsistencies, we, our untrustworthiness onto God. But God gave us his word. He could be trusted. Romans 3, let God be true, everyone else a liar. Our belief is an accusation against God. You don't know what you say I cannot trust. And that's a problem. An eternal problem if you haven't come to faith in Christ. Luke goes on to tell us that the courtyard, everybody's starting to get worried. Like, where is Zechariah? There's a problem. Why is it taking him so long? And you can only see him coming right out of the court area, the high, the high place, like just in shocks, like staggering, right? And, 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 and this, this incident that took place, he can't even speak about. He can't even tell him. He can't say a word. So that everybody went home. Elizabeth went home as well, talking for both of them. And he had heard this great news. You'll get that later. He had just heard the great news that everyone heard for four centuries, but he couldn't tell a soul. Verse 23. You know what? When, when good news is announced, good news comes. The angel said it'll be fulfilled. The time was right. Zechariah finished his work. Verse 23. Time of service ended. He went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Dr. Luke now is zoning in on the nitty-gritty of, of these two people's lives who are experiencing the grace of God. The gospel is meant for hurting people. Here he shows us what the good news meant for Elizabeth, not only for the nations, but for people like her. A woman upon whom God has looked upon with grace. With grace. And she responds in faith and praise. When she realized she was pregnant, the Bible says she stayed home and rest to worship, to wait for God's promise to come true. Her prayers have been answered. Her reproach has ended. And unlike her husband, she was able to lift up her voice and praise the Lord for all that he has done. Now, there are all kinds of reasons people make uh, why Elizabeth, it says, self, kept herself hidden. Some of you in your Bible translations went into seclusion. Luke doesn't give us a reason why it says that. Maybe she waited until she was showing, maybe, 
It was evident that she was pregnant. Maybe she was throwing up every morning, right, ladies? Like, I'm not going anywhere. It doesn't say, but she was praising her God. She was praising God for what he was going to do through her. Her disgrace, the reproach of barrenness was gone. Thankfulness for arriving of a child like this is always met in Scripture with experience of joy and relief and just all that was mixed with what was going on with Elizabeth, as Luke tells us. God is powerfully working in Israel and for this righteous couple. They're learning to trust God during the process. When God speak, our response should be obedience and responding in faith. His word will come to pass. And if you notice, King Herod's reign over Judea is now overruled by a special coming promised moment of God showing up after 400 years saying the Messiah is coming. The remarkable sovereignty of the one who reigns over the cosmos and all of history makes the one who's reigning over Judea minimal and forgettable. God will accomplish what he set out to do. God will use human beings for sure, but his sovereign plan is ultimately not defined by what we do. He does not totally depend on us for the implementation. He will do what God has called and God has said he will do. Zechariah was in a temple going through the motions, activities, prayers, priestly services. He could not bring himself to believe that God would ever do anything that miraculous and he will learn his lesson. Perhaps his hopes were dashed. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you've been praying, you've been praying, you haven't got your answers and therefore you have lost hope because of a deep disappointment in your life. Maybe God didn't answer the prayer in which you wanted. Maybe we're unwilling to hope again. Peter tells us that we can be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for you to give the reason for the hope that we have. But if we don't have hope, how can we give it to others? Sometimes we're wrapped up in this world and we fail to lift our eyes to see the unimaginable and beauty and, and, and power of God, what God has planned, what God has promised, God will fulfill. God will fulfill. You know, the band comes up. Let, let us close this way. Let me ask you. Is your heart ready? Is your heart ready? Is your eyes open? Are you willing to see what God's going to do in your life? And I, I know, I, I, you, for those of you who know me, I'm not talking about cars, money, and bling. Believe me, I'm not. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm one of them prosperity guys, and, but I will say this. God wants to save and rescue you if you have not trusted him. If you have not made a decision to follow Christ, to turn from your sin, have this message, this, this, this narrative of John to say, repent. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ. If the Spirit of God is working on your heart and you're seeing your sin for what it really is, an affront to God, cosmic treason, there's a way of escape. God had made a way for you. He sent John to prepare a way for through repentance and then sent his son as the only sacrifice who lived the perfect life you could never live, died an atoning death in which you should have died, and then rose victorious over sin, death, and hell so that you can have forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins, and be washed and cleansed and have eternal life. Have you trusted him? That's number one. Number two, maybe if you're here this morning and you have trusted Christ, but you're losing hope. Let this story be a hope to you. And God will do what he will do. And God will fulfill the promises he made. 
And God will see you through whatever difficulties and trials you're going through for his glory and your joy. At the end of the day, don't walk out on the movie. It's not over. Trust the Lord. Father, thank you for this time together. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy to us. Father, thank you for this narrative of, 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 that Luke gave us about John. God, we pray that our hearts would be soft and that we would be willing to just turn from running our own lives, doing our own things, being our own Savior, and turn to you. And that, Father, you would restore the hope that we have in you because you're a God who fulfills the promises you've made. And the most important one that you've ever made was that you would send the Lord Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice for our sins. Rising from the dead, declaring to the whole universe, that seen and unseen, that forgiveness has been made, sacrifice accepted, eternal life given to those who turn and trust you. Help us to do that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.